Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. This is Verbal Diorama, and I have a really squeaky chair. Can you hear my chair? <laughs> I don't know what's going on with my chair. If it squeaks when I'm recording, I'm really sorry. I'm literally going to try and stay as still as possible. Okay, so this is the very squeaky inaugural episode of Verbal Diorama. My name's Em, and it's really nice to, I guess, meet you guys. Um... I've been reasonably active on social media sort of from the mid part of last year. And so this has kind of been something that I've wanted to do for a while. And then real life got in the way, as real life does. And it's only really been kind of recently that I've kind of got past quite a lot of some personal issues that I've had. And I feel like, oh crap, I wouldn't say confident because I'm really not like I'm literally sort of sitting here wondering what the hell I'm doing so I wouldn't say confident but I guess you just kind of reach a point where you just got to do it you just got to get on with it and do it if it's something that you want to do and hopefully people will like it and if they don't well you know so what people don't like it um so yeah this is verbal diorama and this is me Hello. So the first thing that I want to say in this inaugural episode of Verbal Diorama and with the squeaky chair is I am not a film critic. I have no critical skills whatsoever. I'm not a film scholar. I'm not an expert in story or film or the production of film or anything. I am not a professional by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just a fan. And I guess the point of me saying that is that I don't look at films from a professional point of view and I'm never ever going to turn around and say well in my professional opinion this 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 because I don't have a professional opinion and I don't want to pretend that I have a professional opinion so I'm just a fan who likes movies and so that's what I want to do I just want to watch movies that maybe movies that I enjoy 
movies that I've never seen before and just kind of say, this is what I've discovered about this movie. Either I like it or I don't like it. And yeah, just, I guess, take it from there. So that's a little bit about me, I guess. And from that, let's talk about a movie. Let's talk about Titan AE. I was born in 3023. Humans had already conquered space. Even though it was easy to travel to the farthest galaxy, we'd always thought Earth would be home. But we were wrong. And we had to leave. Fifteen years after Earth, humanity's last hope is Titan A.E. So, why did I choose Titan A.E.? Well, it wasn't the original movie that I wanted to look at for the first episode. The movie that I wanted to look at actually disappeared from the streaming services. I think the first time I looked was maybe kind of September, October time, because that was when I was really kind of thinking that maybe I could get this off the ground. And then when I looked again, sort of in December, the movie had vanished. And yeah, I could go out and I could buy it. And it wouldn't cost that much money. But I've got these streaming services for a reason. And I kind of feel like, well, okay, if I can't watch that movie, then I'll find something else. And Titan AE was really interesting because when I started to look at the history of the movie, a movie, to be fair, that I'd never seen before this, I knew of it. I didn't really have any interest in watching it. It came out in 2000 and I didn't really have any interest in watching it at the time. I don't know why, because it is kind of my sort of movie. But it was just something that completely kind of flew past my radar, so to speak. And when I actually started to look into the history of the movie how it came about and what actually came from the movie like what was the legacy of the movie that's when it actually started to feel really interesting and so I thought this is the right sort of movie this is the one that I think that I should do and I'm going to summarize the movie a a little bit later on but I first of all wanted to talk a little bit about Don Bluth because I didn't really know that he had the directing job on this movie. And I kind of feel like, had I known, I might have been a bit more interested back in the year 2000. Because when I was a kid, Don Bluth was... His movies were the sort of thing that I really enjoyed. And I do kind of feel like, had I known that, then I might have actually wanted to watch this before now. So Don Bluth actually started out working at Disney. And... It's something that I don't know many, if many people know, that he did uncredited work on Sleeping Beauty and The Sword in the Stone. And he was credited on Robin Hood and The Rescuers, amongst uh, a couple of others. Now, I posted on social media about uh, the Disney version of Robin Hood, because it literally, just thinking of it, brings a smile to my face right now. It was one of my favourite films, sort of Disney films, from when I was a kid, and I could just quote and sing along to that movie from Dust Till Dawn. And this was a period of time where Disney was going through some real difficult times. 
It's sometimes called the Dark Age of Disney. It's sometimes called the Bronze Age of Disney. Basically, Don Bluth worked for Walt Disney Animation Studios from 1959 to 1977. And this uh, Bronze slash Dark Age of Disney was between 1970 and 1988. He actually left Disney. There were a group of animators that were very disheartened. that Walt Disney had, himself had not long passed away. And they were very disheartened at the direction that the Disney company was going in with regards to the animation studios. So he ended up creating Don Bluth Productions in 1979 with nine other Disney animators, including uh, John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman. And Gary Goldman's going to come up again later because he co-directed Titan AE. And so Don Bluth Productions, the first feature length movie was The Secret of Nim in 1982. Again, something that I've not seen, but I've heard of. But Don Blue's Productions actually filed for bankruptcy not long after um, because The Secret of Nim didn't really do great box office and there was also a, an animator strike at the time and so Don Blue's Productions just couldn't carry on. Um, in 1985, Sullivan Bluth Studios was born and Bluth then teamed up with Steven Spielberg for An American Tale, which again is one of those films that I watched all the time as a kid. It's really sad. It makes me cry. It's about this uh, Russian mouse who wants to go to America, and it is really sad. But 1987 was The Land Before Time, which, did you know, that film has had 13 sequels. Like, how? Apparently they're all, like, direct-to-video sequels. But The Land Before Time is such a wonderful movie. I remember buying it for my niece, because she's really into dinosaurs, and when you look at Don Bluth animation... It's a very it's a very obvious style of animation. It's completely different to Disney animation and it's really hard to describe because again, I'm not a professional, so I don't know the differences between all these animations, but there's just a real distinction with the Don Bluth animation. In nineteen eighty nine, All Dogs Go to Heaven came out, which was without Spielberg. It wasn't a massive success at the box office, but apparently the biggest selling VHS release at the time. So at that period of time they were doing some really good business fox animation studios hired don bluth and gary goldman because they wanted to compete with disney because at that point in time sort of the late 80s early 90s disney had had massive success they'd kind of gone out of this sort of bronze age dark age whatever you want to call it when the little mermaid came out in 1989 and the little mermaid was so successful that Fox actually wanted to compete. They wanted to be the opposition to Disney. Disney have then, of course, brought out Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, and Bluth and Goldman brought out Anastasia, which is a really, really good movie. It's a bit of a movie of two halves, and I've, it's a movie that I've not seen in a long time, but it's a very similar kind of premise to a standard Disney princess movie. And... Similarly to Disney, a hand-drawn animated musical with the beautiful kind of princessian lead and a very handsome male protagonist who doesn't actually look completely dissimilar to the handsome male protagonist in Titan AE. I don't know if that was intentional. Who knows? Which brings us nicely to Titan AE because it was very ambitious. It's a sort of part traditional hand-drawn animation and part CGI and obviously with it being a sci-fi movie, 
you kind of think, well, obviously the traditional hand-drawn aspects in CGI will probably work quite well. I'll come back to that. So Titan AE had mixed reviews from critics. It grossed $36.8 million in the year 2000 against a $75 to $90 million budget. It resulted in losses of $100 million for 20th Century Fox. This movie is kind of notorious because it literally brought down Fox Animation Studios. The financial failure of Titan AE was such that the whole studio just went. It disappeared. And I guess it's interesting, the fact that it brought down a studio. Did it really deserve to flop so badly? Um, Let's have a look into the movie and sort of figure it out. So the movie itself, it's got some big names, relatively big names for the time as well. So it stars Matt Damon, Bill Pullman, John Leguizamo, Nathan Lane, Janine Garofalo, Drew Barrymore and Ron Perlman. Let's talk about the movie. <laughs> I just realised I said that like Austin Powers, I didn't mean to. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The following movie plot is fully spoiled. So, a quick summary of the movie. So it's uh, the year 3028, and humans and aliens appear to be living together harmoniously until the dredge, the futuristic-looking alien race powered by pure energy, attack the last humans on Earth who have to flee to deep space. Professor Sam Tucker, leading the research for Project Titan, sends his young son Kale on an evacuation ship with his trusted friend Tech. Before father and son are separated, Sam gives Kale a ring. Sam escapes on the Titan and Kale is on one of the few ships that successfully leave Earth. Most of the human ships are destroyed either by the dredge or by the destruction of Earth and the moon. The few surviving humans become second-class citizens in the universe. Fifteen years later, an adult Kale works at a salvage yard, cutting scrap metal off ships. He's abused by his fellow alien workmates and, whilst trying to bypass the lunch line, bumps into a large ship called the Valkyrie. The captain of the Valkyrie, Joseph Corso, tracks Kale down in the lunch hall and reveals he used to work with his father. He shows Kale the map, encoded in the ring his father gave him, telling him that humanity's only hope of survival is finding the Titan. The dredge attack the salvage yard and Corso helps Kale fight them off. Kale escapes aboard the Valkyrie and meets Corso's team, Pilot Akima, First Mate Preed, Chief Scientist Goon and Munitions Officer Stiff. On the planet Shesharim, an alien bat-like race called the Gaul interpret the map and discover the Titan is hidden in the Andal Nebula. The Dredge attacks Shesharim and after a chase through a field of floating globe bombs, Kale and Akima are captured by the Dredge and bond over their experiences of Earth while the Dredge ship boards the mothership. The map to Titan is extracted from Kale and Akima, surplus to the Dredge's requirements, is expelled from the mothership. Akima is found rather than rescued by the crew of the Valkyrie, and Kale steals a dredge ship and escapes. They discover Kale's map is different, and Kale flies the ship alongside some wake angels, luminous blue bird-like creatures that live in deep space and apparently bring good luck. The Valkyrie ports at the drifter colony of New Bangkok for supplies, where Kale and Akima learn that Corsa and Preed are planning to betray them, but they are discovered by Preed, and they escape into the colony. Corso and the rest of the crew set off to find the Titan, leaving Kale and an injured Akima stranded on New Bangkok. With the help of various residents of New Bangkok and a montage, they salvage and repair a ship called the Phoenix to find Titan before Corso. They reach the Andal Nebula, a dangerous yet stunning shifting ice fielding space, and after a game of cat and mouse, using the reflections of the ice rings, dock with the Titan before the Valkyrie. 
On board are thousands of examples of Earth animal DNA, along with a holographic message from Professor Sam Tucker, explaining that the Titan was destined to create a new planet for humans to exist on. However, due to its escape from Earth 15 years previously, it no longer has the power necessary to create this new planet. This message is interrupted by Corso and Preed, the latter whom betrays Corso by exposing himself as a double agent for the Dredge. He attempts to kill Corso, Kale and Akima, but is killed by Corso, who then attacks Kale. Kale believes Corso has dropped to his death before the Dredge attacked the Titan. Kale realises that if he can modify the Titan to absorb the energy of the Dredge, then this may be enough to start the reactor and give it enough energy to create a new planet, whilst also exterminating the Dredge threat. A malfunction is discovered and Kale must repair the ship while Kima, Goon and Stith attack and distract the Dredge, who are firing from the ice shield surrounding the Titan. Corso reappears and instead of attacking Kale, he helps repair the ship and then sacrifices himself to finish the repair. The Titan re-energises and absorbs the dredge of the ship and the Andon Nebula and creates a brand new planet. In 16 AE, Kale and Akima stand in the rain admiring a beautiful vista and discuss the name of the new planet. As colony ships filled with humans arrive into the atmosphere, Kale suggests they call it Bob. And that's the movie. So the movie is interesting. It was written by Ben End and Joss Whedon, someone who may or may not pop up on this podcast a fair amount, and John August. Um, you can really tell that some of the movie was written by Joss Whedon um, because some of the humour feels Joss whedon If you're a fan of Joss Whedon's work, then you'll probably know what I mean. Some of the humour is slightly misplaced at times. It kind of feels a little bit jarring. Um, sort of in a serious scene, there'll all of a sudden be some sort of witty remark, sort of a very whedonistic witty remark um so yes humor in this movie is sometimes misplaced um but when it works it does work really well such as the line an intelligent guard didn't see that one coming Um, because guards are never intelligent that's kind of the point of the guards in movies you know they're not there to actually stop someone from doing something they're just there to kind of make the point that these you know your protagonists can get past the guard so the squeaky chair (laughs) Uh, this is going to really annoy me. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so with regards to the animation, I mentioned before that it's a, a mix of hand-drawn and CGI. It's very much Don Bluth animation. It feels like Don Bluth animation. It looks like Don Bluth animation. And the CGI is mainly used for sort of the... It's used for the dredge, so for the alien race. And it's also used for scenes in space, such as the planets, the ships, the debris floating around. And sometimes there's a distinct dichotomy between the two styles. You don't expect it to be seamless, but especially the bits on Earth at the start of the movie, it feels a little bit like oil and water because you feel like the actual hand-drawn animations are kind of floating a little bit because they're obviously animated and then the CGI is maybe animated on top or they're kind of moulded together. But you would never feel like the hand-drawn animated characters are actually secure within a ship or on a planet's surface or because they always feel like they're kind of hovering. And it's really quite obvious a lot. The only time it's not is when the scenes are set in space 
So, for example, with the scenes in the Andal Nebula, which was like the um, this big, massive ice field in space, they had this beautiful kind of CGI ice crystals where the ships were reflecting in the ice um, sort of multiple times. And that was really, really stunning. It was really beautifully done. And it's something that you just wouldn't be able to get that effect with the hand-drawn animation. So for that, it was absolutely gorgeous and it worked so well. But there was really no... It was all CGI or it felt all CGI. They never felt like there was any hand-drawn animation in those scenes to to kind of get that effect, that oil and water kind of effect of weird hovery layers. And um, the animations for the dredge, again, you kind of had these hand-drawn characters that were fighting the dredge, you know, shooting uh, laser blasts at them. And that was, on the most part, quite well done. But again, they, they the dredge themselves, they're like... A- alien shaped oh you how could it be alien shaped but they were so they looked like aliens and they were like pulsating with this sort of blue energy so they were very kind of visually appealing but again it just didn't seem to there seemed to be this real obvious difference it was almost as if you know in some movies that are very cgi driven and you look at a scene and it's quite obvious that that CGI character wasn't there originally um, and they've added it in in post. That's kind of how it felt with the dredge. It wasn't that they were, you know, not effective. They just felt like they weren't really there. And that's kind of an issue that's quite prevalent throughout the movie. But I don't know how they could have gotten away with that. Especially at the time, because remember, this was the year 2000 and this sort of technology, it was there and it was good. I mean, anyone who's seen Toy Story from 95 and Toy Story 2 from 99 knows that CGI was really, really good. But they were complete CGI worlds. They didn't have that addition of the hand-drawn style to compare it to. And they just didn't seem to mix very well for me. But anyway, uh, as I said, I'm not an expert on animation. So that's just my opinion. Um, Also, I'm not a geologist. Let me me make that clear. People are going to be like, well, what exactly do you do? I'm not a geologist. But I kind of argue that the earth blowing up would kind of cause a hell of a lot more destruction and rubble and just general stuff kind of going into space than it actually happens in the movie. But I don't know. I guess they it's artistic license and whatever. Um, I mentioned earlier about Matt Damon. Um, and I guess I kind of felt like his performance in this movie was like OK. But I'd never say he was a recognisable voice. It's not like in Aladdin where, you know, straight away, you don't even have to read the cast list. You know that the genie is Robin Williams. You just know. And even in this movie, you know that Drew Barrymore is Akima because she sounds like Drew Barrymore and you know that Bill Pullman is Corso because he sounds like Bill Pullman but Matt Damon's a bit of a strange choice for this movie because I wouldn't be able to pick out his voice he doesn't have a very distinctive voice like he's a fine actor but he doesn't have a distinctive voice so yeah it's a bit of a curious choice but he does perfectly fine. Like, he's very charismatic. 
he's just not recognisable. Another interesting thing about this movie is you could argue that this is a kid's movie, I guess because it's an animation. I mean, we all know that animations aren't just for kids. I'm an anime fan and I know that for a fact. But it seems very much to me that this movie has sort of roots in Japanese anime in a sense that it has no qualms about nudity, violence and blood. There are a couple of scenes where characters are nude. Obviously, there are towels covering their intimate areas, etc. But partial nudity, it doesn't matter. Violence, spoilers, but a character gets his neck snapped by another character. Several characters are shot and there's plenty of scenes where characters are shot and you see blood. You see proper blood. You don't see blue blood or, you know, any other way that filmmakers use to get round blood. It's proper red blood. Gushy blood. <laughs> That's the only way to describe it is gushy blood. Um, yeah, it's it kind of shows that Fox was not only looking to rival Disney, but to show this stark contrast to Disney, because Disney has always been very family friendly. Disney doesn't show excessive violence, doesn't show nudity, definitely doesn't show blood or characters getting quite graphically killed by other characters. So in that way, Fox was actually trying something quite interesting. It's they're trying to push the boundaries of this animation style and that is constantly interesting. The soundtrack. Okay, so this is a movie from the year 2000. The soundtrack is a soundtrack from a movie from the year 2000. And it really dates the movie. The soundtrack is fine, I guess, if you like kind of alt-rock. I'm not opposed to alt-rock. I think alt-rock is fine. But it just... It feels like late 90s alternative rock. That's what it feels like. And it does date the movie a little bit, which is really difficult because the movie's already dated from just the style of animation. And so if it's being dated by the music as well, it's kind of a little bit like, well, will today's kids actually want to see this movie if it's so dated? But ultimately, I think they should. I think people should watch this movie. I feel like this movie has been given a really kind of short shift. Um, if you watch it, the links to things like Firefly and Battlestar Galactica are there. And especially when you see that Joss Whedon himself, not long after this, was producing Firefly. And it seems to be a very much a spiritual predecessor to Firefly. And as a Firefly fan, and as someone who is constantly disappointed what Fox did to Firefly, you can really see the characters in this movie, whilst they're not the same as those in Firefly, it's almost like they're distant cousins of Firefly. And it's really interesting. It's really interesting to go back and, and, and watch that. The comparisons that have been made to this movie, um, obviously I've mentioned before about the anime style, apparently uh, Bluth and Goldman have acknowledged that comparison and they have agreed that there is a comparison there. It's, in many ways, this movie was ahead of its time. You know, yes, the CGI is rudimentary. It's nothing like the quality of 
other CGI animation at the time. But again, they're very, very different styles. The ambition that this movie had, it's kind of, it's almost like this movie would have done so much better had it been thought of and released later. It feels like this is like a product of its its time in many ways. But the the actual ambition behind it and not just for like the way it looks, but also the characters, you know, there are many races, both sort of human and alien depicted in the movie, which again is something that we talk at the moment about diversity and representation in movies and about how important that is. And I think that is really important. And I think this movie actually tried really hard to diversify and to represent although the lead characters are white men essentially the woman in the cast Akima is a a woman of color she's she's smart she's resourceful and she doesn't need saving even though the men do attempt to save her she's already saved herself and you know when you look at the the colony of New Bangkok we we don't meet very many people in New Bangkok, but the people we do meet are different races, different ages. And in many ways, that's something that was very rarely seen sort of at that time, especially in animation. And now it's something that I think a lot of studios are more interested in diversifying, making sure that we have more women behind the camera and in front of the camera making sure that we have more people of color behind the camera and in front of the camera because it is really important and this is something that is important to me as a woman specifically a white woman to see women characters on screen that aren't just there to be the love interest even though technically Akima is the love interest But she's also not the princess that needs saving. And that's something that's quite important. And in a way, the film does kind of attempt to diversify. um, But ultimately, the protagonist is a very handsome, blonde male. And Akima is the love interest. And the bad guy is a man. But, you know... You can't have everything in life. And sometimes you've just got to take a movie and just accept it for what it is. And I think that if people actually took this movie, I think they would accept it for actually, it's not a bad movie. It's actually fun. It's enjoyable to watch. It's a little bit groundbreaking. And did it deserve to flop so badly? No, it really didn't. I can imagine if I had watched it at the time thinking, wow, this looks incredible. It only looks a bit dodgy now because, you know, we're 19 years on. Of course, it's going to look different. Of course, it's going to look like it's a bit dated. Of course, it's going to sound a bit dated because it is dated. And ultimately, I think that if people are more open to the idea of watching movies that maybe don't conform to certain standards that this is a movie that can be enjoyed by kids maybe older kids maybe kids that understand that if you 
shoot someone, they're going to bleed. But I don't see any reason why this can't find a revival of sorts. And I think it kind of has. I wouldn't say it's a cult classic because I think you have to meet a lot more criteria to become a cult classic. But I certainly think that it's something that kids should be able to understand and appreciate as opposed to the traditional kind of very family-friendly Disney of that sort of era. This was something that tried to do something a bit different and to try to push the boundaries of animation and story and style and character. Did it succeed at all those things? No, it didn't. Let's be honest, it really didn't. But it tried really hard and ultimately it didn't deserve to flop and it definitely didn't deserve to be the movie that killed an entire studio. It's better than that. It really deserves your time and I really hope that people will actually give it a shot. So maybe, just maybe, if you find it on a streaming service and you haven't seen it, maybe give it a go. But maybe don't listen to the podcast first because I spoiled it. So something that I wanted to talk about too was obviously I've been planning this podcast for quite a while and I appreciate that it's been a while. It's been a long time and during that time I've, like I say, I've tried to keep relatively active on social media and I did an Instagram story. It was a long time ago, I'm not going to lie, but I originally recorded an episode back in I'm going to say like September, October time, but I was really unhappy with it and I was really unhappy with it for a few reasons. I'm not going to go into them and I'm not going to talk about the subject that I talked about because I might actually come back to it. And if I come back to it, then I don't want it to be the, oh, well, I talked about this before and I didn't like it. Um, But one of the things I wanted to do in the Instagram stories was I wanted to sort of say, have you got any questions? that you want me to answer because this is a new podcast and I'm going to be open. I'm going to be frank. Hi, my name's Frank. (laughs) Sorry, I've got got a really weird sense of humour. And so I wanted anyone to ask me any questions and I got one question and it's from Offscreen Babble who are a lovely podcast that I listen to and that I love hosted by Sade and Kyle. So a little shout out to them. But they asked me a question and so I wanted to answer it because I don't forget about promises that I make and I promised I'd read it out. So here we go. So Offscreen Babble asked me, bear in mind this was last year, what new movie have you seen this year that you would recommend others to see? Well, Offscreen Babble, I've seen quite a few movies this year, but nothing that I would particularly recommend others to see. But I want to recommend a movie that I saw at the end of last year and it blew me away. It really did. It was a movie that I feel came out of nowhere and really floored me. And it's something that I can't wait to see again. Like I have the Blu-ray on order like right now. It was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And I kind of feel like I don't know why it floored me because... I I think everyone knew that it would be good because 
it wasn't not going to be an enjoyable movie. But I think what really impressed me was not only the fact that it kind of didn't stick to the same old Spider-Man story, and it, it kind of gave it a fresh take and it introduced all of these other sort of spider people from all of these other universes. But that it was quite happy to kind of make fun of the other movies and kind of the Tobey Maguire ones in particular, which I still think Spider-Man 2 is great. And as a bit of research... Uh, I watched Spider-Man 2 sort of not long after I watched Spider-Verse just to kind of compare them because at that point Spider-Man 2 was my favourite Spider-Man movie. It's not my favourite Spider-Man movie now. Um, Spider-Verse is my favourite Spider-Man movie and I'm really, really sad that it's, it's, it's not done terrible in the UK. I think it did quite well but more people haven't seen it and I don't know why because it's really great. And it really deserves a watch. It's, it can't be described. When I think of the animation of Titan AE, which obviously looks really dated now, and yeah, it, when I'm talking about the layers of animation and how it, it doesn't quite look right, Spider-Verse has those layers. And it has this kind of comic book, hand-drawn quality. And it has this kind of... CGI quality and it, it it has like all of these different animation layers it's really clever that it focuses your eye on certain parts of the screen by blurring out other parts and it looks like a comic book and it feels like a comic book and it oh it oh man I I, I just can't I can't describe it I can't do it justice I can't I don't have the English language vocabulary to do justice to the animation in Spider-Verse. It is outstanding. It's incredible. It's There's so much depth to sort of each scene. And it looks absolutely stunning. And it's hilariously funny. And the character work is amazing. And I just, I just really want people to watch it. I know it was from last year and I know it's probably left the cinema now and even though I, I heard it was going into IMAX sort of in February in the UK but please if you've not seen Spider-Verse please please watch it because you will not regret it it is fantastic and last year a lot of the movies that I liked were sort of along the realms of comic book sci-fi I'm not going to do a top 10 because I'm not going to bore you with doing a top 10 but Infinity War was my favourite movie of last year because for me that was a culmination of a decade's worth of stories and that is incredible feat in itself. But as soon as I saw Spider-Verse, I was like, nah. Infinity War is number two. Spider-Verse is number one. End of story. And so off-screen babble, that's what I'd say. I would say... If you haven't seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, go see it. Because I guarantee you'll love it. And that's kind of it. You're the best of all of us, Miles. You're on your way. When do I know I'm Spider-Man? You won't. That's all it is, Miles. A leap of faith. Like, what's up, danger? 
Okay, so I think we just got to the end of this episode. And I'm kind of feeling a little bit anxious that I've forgotten something really big. But I don't think I have. And if I have, I'm really sorry. Okay, so anyway, um, this was my first episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it, whether that's kind of a bit of information that you maybe didn't know, or maybe you want to go and watch Titan AE. That's great. I am so stoked if you want to watch Titan AE. Um, If you want to watch Titan AE again, then great. Please watch Titan AE again. Or if you just like the sound of my voice, then cool beans. I look forward to continuing with it. Hopefully I can get guests on in the future. I think that would be brilliant because, you know, it's no fun talking to yourself. You're in a room and you're literally talking to yourself. It's like if someone was standing behind the door right now, they would think I was a total weirdo. Maybe I am. Who knows? Anyway, essentially, I am talking to myself right now. But I digress. You'll find that I talk a lot and I'm really sorry. I wanted to finish off by basically just saying, if you've made it this far through like the 40 odd minutes that you've been listening to this, thank you. I really appreciate it. If you don't follow me, then follow me. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. Or you can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. I am happy to take suggestions for any movies, movies that have a really interesting history or a really interesting legacy or maybe a troubled production or maybe it's actually a really terrible movie, but it actually kind of shouldn't have been. It actually should have been good, but it ended up being really bad. But anyway, um, I am happy to take suggestions. I have a couple of ideas for something that I want to do next, but hey, let me know. I am open. Um, And so I guess I will say thank you for listening. And hopefully I will be back very soon with the next movie that I want to talk about. Cheers, guys. Bye.